If you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Jesus has uh, appeared in a vision to the Apostle. The Apostle has sort of reported to us what he saw in this, the, this powerful and blinding sort of glorious vision of the risen Lord Jesus. And Jesus has commissioned John to write what he sees. And at this point, we're in a little bit of a pause between that commissioning and what he will begin to see in chapter 4. So before he gets the vision proper, if you will, the body of the book of Revelation, he is given these particular messages, these letters to the seven churches in the area of, uh, of the province of Asia Minor. And of course, as we've observed already by the number seven, there are, of course, seven actual local churches to whom he writes, but it represents the church as a whole. And so Jesus is writing to these individual churches And yet he intends for all of his church and all of his churches to receive this instruction as he says time and again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And so these are messages from the Lord Jesus to imprint community church, as it were, as well. We've seen uh, the story of a loveless church, a church that was faithful in doctrine and yet was lacking in love for God and love for neighbor. And Jesus had strong words of rebuke for them. We saw last week uh, an afflicted church, a church that indeed was faithful under persecution and increasing pressure. Jesus had no rebuke or correction for them, only words of commendation and of preparation, preparing them for uh, the pressure that would increase, the persecution that would grow. In their lives. And this morning, we read the message of Jesus to a compromising church. Compromising church. Let me read for you these verses Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. The church at Pergamum. Here's what the Lord says To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp, two edged sword I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. He begins this letter to the church of Pergamum as he does with each of these seven letters with an identification of himself. 
There is something of Christ's identity that begins each of these addresses. And as we've seen, these identification markers are drawn from the vision that John had of the risen Lord Jesus in chapter 1. And so you see, he identifies himself here as him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And so he reveals himself here as the truthful judge. The truthful judge. Now the image of Jesus with a sword would conjure up immediate uh, images of royalty, of indeed imperial power. Every emperor uh, was depicted holding a sword. It meant he had power. He was the conquering sort of hero of the day. This is how the emperors were depicted. So the very image of Jesus with a sword bears a certain implication that we must not miss. Namely, he is a king. It's a subtle reminder that followers of Jesus are subjects of a rival kingdom. To say Jesus is Lord is to make a political statement, an all-encompassing declaration of Christ's authority over every sphere of life. And so as Jesus comes to his church as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, he is reminding them, I am not just a king or any king, but the king. I am the highest authority in your life in my church, and indeed in all the universe. And so we would do well to remember this is to whom we give account. The notion of the sword being two-edged tells us that it's sharp on both sides of it. So it doesn't matter what direction it swings, it cuts. This is a sharp sword, and it's sharp in any direction that it swings. There is no avoiding the blade of Christ's sword when he swings it. His judgment will be certain, and it cannot be escaped when he purposes to bring it. We're, of course, reminded of the words in Hebrews that speak of the word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting to the division of joint and marrow and laying bare the hearts of men before God. His word is this judge for us. And we're reminded of that truth by the fact that this sword, if you'll remember from Revelation 1, verse 16, as he saw, as John saw, in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So the sword is not in his hand. The sword is coming from his mouth, which reminds us, which tells us that the sharp, efficient sword of Christ's judgment is his word. When he speaks, he speaks truly. He speaks rightly. He speaks knowingly. There is no higher court to which one may appeal. When Jesus renders a judgment, the thing is Settled, And this is how Christ comes to the church at Pergamum, reminding them, I am king and judge, and I have a sharp judging word against all those who oppose me. Greg Beale says that the idea of Christ standing over the church as a threatening judge because of their sin is the thought pervading the entire letter to Pergamum. 
Now, to be sure, it's not all bad. What he says to the church at Pergamum includes some commendations. But nevertheless, the notion of judge Jesus with this sharp sword ready to swing is what colors all of his words to this church. They're on the brink of disaster, on the brink of, indeed, judgment by their king. As with most of these letters, there's some good, there's some bad, and then there is hope that's given at the end. So let's talk about the good. Among the church at Pergamum, the good is that he sees in them a courageous faith, a courageous faith. Now, you need to know about Pergamum that it is a hot spot among Asia Minor of pagan idolatry. We've talked a good bit about the Roman imperial cult and the expectation of Roman citizens and those under Roman uh, rule to uh, actually give worshipful homage to Caesar, to the emperor. But in addition to that, there's all manner of false deities that are worshipped in this place and in this time. And Pergamum is like maybe the chief city in this region where these Uh, temples are built and where these false gods are worshipped. It was indeed the first city in Asia with a temple to a living emperor. All of the other cities that had temples to to Roman emperors were emperors who had died. It's already been enshrined, if you will, in their canon. Pergamum is the first city that has a temple to an emperor who is actually currently living and reigning. There's a hill behind the city of Pergamum as it rises up that is populated with temples to various uh, Greek gods, including a prominent one to Zeus, of course considered sort of the the father of the gods. And as you approach the city, you, you might see smoke rising to the heavens from one of these temples as sacrifices were offered to these false gods. Pergamum was a center for the cult of Asclepius, Asclepius is known as the god of healing. The image, the symbol for Asclepius was a rod with a serpent wrapped around it. And you would recognize that image. It's still associated with uh, our medical industry. The American Medical Association has the emblem of a rod with serpents on it uh, as its sort of uh, symbol. And it comes from this, from this Greek god Asclepius, who was the god of healing. Our word scalpel comes from the Greek name, Asclepius. It's, it's a derivative of that. So there's a lot of influence, even unknowingly here uh, in our own day, with this very false god. And so perhaps it's because of this sort of uh, the, the hot seat, the hot spot of, of pagan worship and emperor worship that Pergamum is, that Jesus dubs this city the place where Satan dwells, right? This is where throne, where Satan's throne is. <clears throat> the first words he says to this church is, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And in a way he's saying, I know how hard your situation is. I know that you are in a place, maybe uniquely among all these other cities in Asia, you are in a place where it is especially difficult to remain faithful to the faith and to the name of Christ, where Satan's throne is. And that also reminds us that where there is false religion, Satan is at home. Where there is false teaching, Satan is at work. Satan is actively attempting to disciple people 
into error and away from the living God and toward the worship of false gods and toward any idolatry that would take our hearts away from Christ. Satan wants people to worship false gods. And listen, if he can get Christians to do it, if he can turn the heart of a Christian toward idolatry, away from prioritizing Christ and his kingdom, man, he is sleeping soundly at night. This is Satan's goal and his aim. And this is the context of Christian life in Pergamum. To be a member of the church at Pergamum is to be in Satan's dwelling place. It's to be in a uh, dangerous environment of pressure and of temptation to follow Satan into these false religions. Because of that environment, we also need to know and recognize from this text that persecution, that is the actual uh, damage and torture and harassment and harm brought to Christians because of their faith in Christ, persecution has been hot in Pergamum. Jesus says here uh, that they've been faithful to him even in the days of Antipas, even in the days. So in other words, he's speaking of a particularly high point of pressure and tension as, these, as the persecution had increased. And Antipas, it seems, had given his very life for the faith of Jesus. He said, even in the days of Antipas, who was killed among you. And so they've been faithful even among this incredibly hard situation, not just because of the environment and the the sort of temptations and pressures that may abound, but because the persecution has risen to such a level that some are actually being killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And calling it in the days of Antipas seems to imply that maybe the harshest season of persecution has passed for this church in this time. Maybe he's saying, okay, you've made it, right? You've made it this far through the the sort of gauntlet of persecution that was before you and and, and you you remained true to my word. You remain true to my name. I want you to see, I want to spend just a minute here looking at how he speaks of this Antipas. We don't know really anything about Antipas except it, from the Bible, except what's written here. There is a tradition in the Eastern Orthodox Church that Antipas was burned to death in a bronze bull that had been hollowed out and then a fire lit underneath it. And so he was basically roasted to death because of his uh, faith in Christ and indeed his opposition to some of those pagan practices that were going on in their culture. Now, we don't know that for certain, but that is a Uh, a legend that sort of springs up around this time. So we don't have a lot of information about Antipas, but we do know how Jesus regards him. We do know that he gave his life. He was killed among you, says Jesus. And Jesus has warm, proud words of honor to bestow on Antipas. Let's read this phrase. He says, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. That phrase, my faithful witness, Jesus is attributing to Antipas the very designation that had been made of Christ himself in chapter 1, verse 5. As John opened the, the book of Revelation, he 
offered to the readers grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come. It's the Father. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's the, the Spirit of God. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. That's how Christ was introduced to us in chapter 1, verse 5. And that is the very same phrase that Christ now bestows upon Antipas. This one who had remained convinced of Christ's lordship and determined to honor the name of Christ even when it cost him his life. And so Christ celebrates Antipas in this subtle way. My faithful witness. This is how Jesus feels about his <clears throat> witness, Antipas. I think of, the, uh, of Jesus' own words where he gives the parable of the one showing up at sort of at the last day and, and the master would say to the servant, well done, good and faithful servant. Certainly we envision Antipas having received that commendation from the Lord when he entered his presence. He is delighted by the devotion of his servants. And friends, that in itself ought to give us a, a motivation, a, a drive to remain faithful even when it's hard, even when we're under pressure, even when we're tempted. We want to give honor to Jesus. We want to delight His heart by how we endure under pressure, how we remain true to His Word. Look how many times Jesus says the word my in this, in this sentence or two. He says, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. This is personal to Jesus. These are his people. This is his name and the honor of his name at stake. This is the, the faith that he has delivered and authored, as the book of Hebrews tells us, for his people. These are his servants that are doing his work. And so he commends the church at Pergamum. You have been faithful to me. You've borne my name well. You've kept my faith steadfastly. And even Antipas gave his life as my faithful witness. So friends, we should be encouraged, challenged by the example of Antipas and the faithful at Pergamum to stand firm in the faith and courageously Stand firm. And the courage to stand firm will not come from standing for a cause. It will come from standing from a person. It will come when the Lord Jesus Christ is himself our chief treasure and our highest goal. We must grow in our esteem for Jesus so that the pressure around us as it heats up and, and as the, the persecution begins and as the social pressure begins to mount, that we will be willing and ready to go even to the gallows because our hearts delight to honor our King whom we love. This is how we ought to live we have to plead with the Lord to do that work in our hearts that Christ would become this precious to us. So he commends them for their courageous faith. But it's not all good. He reminds them in verse 14, I have a few things against you. And the, the bad that he brings against them is this, a compromised holiness, a compromised 
holiness. And you see that holiness compromised both in word and in deed, in teaching and in living. Now notice he says in verse 14, uh, excuse me, yeah, in 14, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. He doesn't say everybody holds this teaching. He doesn't say the whole church has been swept up in, in, this, uh, in this false doctrine. So there are among the faithful, there are compromisers. There are false teachers. There are wolves among the sheep, to use Jesus' own image from the Gospels. There are false teachers who are arising within the church who are leading people astray. And so he says there are some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And then later he says, I will, if you don't repent, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So the warring is specifically targeted toward the ones among the church who have uh, carried out this uh, false teaching. But nevertheless, the church as a whole is warned sternly here to repent and to deal with the false teaching in their midst. Now, he introduces here the, the, the story of Balaam. So as we've talked a little bit about how, Revela- how much Revelation draws on Old Testament images and stories and prophecies, we have here just a mention of Balaam and Balak, um, which, unfolds, uh, which refers to a story that unfolded over several chapters in the book of Numbers. So in Numbers chapter 22 through 25, and then kind of picking up again in chapter 31 as the story of Balaam comes to an end. This uh, refers to what happened there. So you see there, he says, some there hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So you've got to talk about the story of Balaam to know what is meant by that and what relevance that has for the church of Pergamum and indeed for imprint community church today. Balaam was a, a, a pagan seer. He was not an Israelite. He was not a, a follower or believer in, in Yahweh, the, the true God of Israel. He was, he was a pagan uh, who sort of kind of a prophet for hire. He was a guy who had uh, perhaps by, uh, you know, dark forces, not exactly sure, but who was known in the area as one who would uh, sort of offer, uh, you know, prophecies or predictions or or whatever uh, to people if they would pay the right price. So for a fee, Balaam would come to your party and and pronounce a a blessing or a curse or whatever it was, right? And so uh, Balak is a Moabite king who is terrified of Israel because Israel is wandering in the wilderness and they've been beating everybody up. Because the God of Israel is on their side. And so they're winning every battle and they're clearing out the land of Canaan. This is just before uh, Moses hands off the torch to Joshua to lead the people to, uh, to, to conquest. And so God is clearly on the side of Israel and the Moabites are afraid. And so the Moabite king, Balak, says, maybe if I get this pagan prophet fella uh, to curse Israel, to pronounce a curse upon them, maybe we can defeat them in battle. And so he thinks, maybe I just need to appease the right God, and maybe this guy over here, for the right price, would be willing to appeal to this God to, to defeat Israel in battle. And so uh, Balak goes to Balaam with some servants and offers him some money and says, will you please curse my enemies, uh, the people of Israel, so that we might win uh, in battle against him. 
and there's back and forth and uh, no, I can't do that. Uh, and then he comes back again. Well, maybe for a little bit more money. Okay, maybe I can do that for that much money. And so he goes with him, right? So Balaam is clearly interested in the, 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 the financial compensation that would come from his work. And so Balaam actually tries to curse Israel. This pagan prophet tries in the name of Yahweh to pronounce a curse upon the people of Israel. But God won't allow him to do it. God keeps standing in the way and making the circumstances such that he cannot pronounce blessings. Every time he tries, he only gives him, uh, he can't pronounce curse. Every time he tries to curse them, God only gives blessing. And so Balaam stands to curse Israel and out of his mouth come things like, and Jacob's land shall increase forever. And, you know, like it keeps being blessing. And Balaam's like, what are you, that's not what I'm paying you for. What are you doing? I'm paying you to curse them and you keep blessing them. So Balaam keeps trying. Now, during one of these attempts to curse uh, Israel, uh, Balaam is riding his donkey to Moab and is met on the road by an angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand. And ironically, in this story, Balaam can't see the angel, but the donkey does. So Balaam's donkey is a more perceptive seer than Balaam, the paid prophet. The irony is pretty thick. So he can't see him, and so he gets mad. The, the donkey refuses to go forward, and so Balaam starts beating the donkey. What are you doing? Go! And the donkey's like, I'm not going anywhere because there's an angel in the way. And so eventually the donkey actually starts talking to Balaam. He says, hey, why are you hitting me? Is it my habit to like just stop in the middle of the road? Clearly something's up. And Balaam's like, well, just go. I'm supposed to go to Moab. So they have this conversation. It's really kind of a funny scene. And so uh, then God opens the eyes of Balaam to see the angel. So after the conversation with the donkey, dude, there's an angel. Don't you see him? No, I don't see him. Bam. Oh, okay. There he is. There's this angel blocking the path with a sword. The message is clear. If you are going to try to curse Israel, it's not going to go well for you. Right? So Balaam goes forward and attempts to curse and cannot do it. On three separate occasions, Balaam ends up pronouncing blessing upon Israel instead of curse. And so Balak, the Moabite king, is frustrated and mad and sends Balaam away. But because he wants the cash, Balaam has another idea. And so he suggests to Balak, the Moabite king, that he sends some of the Moabite women. Now, again, the people of Moab are, are idol worshipers. They don't follow the true God. They are worshiping false gods and uh, guilty of all manner of, of immorality. And so Balaam, the prophet, says to Balak, why don't you send some of your women into the camp of Israel to sort of entice them into relationships, right? And so they do. And in the course of being enticed into these relationships, the women also invite them to come with them to their temples and to sacrifice uh, uh, offerings to the god uh, Baal. And, and so Israel is led into idolatry, to the actual worship of false gods by these Moabite women. Now, this is not like a, a curse uh, or a, a prohibition against interracial marriage. The problem here is that it's interfaith marriage, right? So these marriages are the people of God with the faith of God marrying those who are worshiping false gods. And so they are thus led astray. So the men of Israel begin marrying these Moabite women and they're led into the worship of idols and uh, sexual immorality, which verse 14 tells us plainly in the summary that Jesus gives uh, so that they would be led into 
eating meat sacrificed to idols and into sexual immorality. And that episode ends soberly in Numbers 25 with some 24,000 Israelites being struck dead by God in judgment for their idolatry and immorality. And Balaam himself ultimately meets the two-edged sword of the divine judge in Numbers 31.8 when he is struck down in battle. And so this story of Balaam and Balak, which we presume that the readers, the original readers of Revelation would have been very familiar with, knowing, known as a day when 24,000 of their people had been judged and killed for their sin of idolatry. That, that kind of thing tends to live in a people's memory. This story points out to us the strategies, at least the twofold strategy that Satan will implement against the people of God. <clears throat> the first is just plain direct attack. Like for Balaam and Balak, the direct attack was maybe we can get God to actually curse Israel and just pronounce curses upon them and they'll be weakened and they can be defeated in battle. And of course that doesn't work. So when the direct attack doesn't work, they take, he takes the route of deceit. So we can't win by this overt uh, tactic. So we're going to come around the side door and deceive the people, leading them astray into false worship. Ephesians 6 tells us about the, the schemes of the devil and the flaming darts of the evil one that he throws our way. And if we are not prepared, if we are not alert, not just to the overt attacks, like somebody saying, renounce your faith or else, but even the side door attacks, like maybe to be a really good Christian, you actually should believe this. Or maybe to be faithful to Christ, you actually need to to tweak some of your beliefs on this issue, right? Maybe faithfulness to Christ actually looks like something different than what what you think. We need to be prepared for the direct attack and the the side attacks that would deceive us and lead us astray. False teaching always provides a theological justification for sin. And that's what's going on here. Those who are teaching uh, the word of Balaam or or hold the teaching of Balaam are providing the people uh, a theological justification to go on and participate in the various sort of acts of pagan idol worship. Right? kind of trying to ease their conscience. Maybe it's not that bad. We know these gods aren't real, and so it ultimately doesn't really have any effect on your life. You know that Jesus is the true king, so it's okay if you pay homage to the emperor. It doesn't really actually mean anything. And he mentions again the Nicolaitans. They're only mentioned in two places in the Bible, here and in the letter to the church at Ephesus. And they seem to be teaching very similar things. This notion of, hey, everything is cool. In Christ, we're free. So, like, go ahead and, and indulge in whatever you like and these pagan practices. And it doesn't really mean anything at all. So it seems to be very similar to uh, those who hold the teaching of Balaam. But false teaching always provides a theological justification for sin. That's what it comes down to. Satan doesn't have a lot of new ideas. He just takes old ones and and repackages them so they look a little bit different to us. And false teaching always leads to false living. False teaching always leads to false living. When we believe lies, we live contrary to God's will. 
That's the way that this works because we live based on what we believe. We don't always live based on what we profess. You know the difference? We don't always live based on what we say is true or what on paper I would sign my name to. Yeah, I believe that. That's not always how I live. How I live actually lines up with what I really, at the deepest level, believe to be true. So if what I'm really believing at a deep level is a lie, then I'm going to live in line with that. And it's going to be contrary to the, work, to the will and word of God. The holiness of the Pergamum church has been compromised by the corrupting influence of some among them. It's telling, it's instructive for us that Jesus has such strong words of warning to the entire church on the basis of the corruption of some. There are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam. And nevertheless, he warns the whole church. It is leading to increased immorality within the congregation. As otherwise faithful followers of Jesus begin to hear these teachings, perhaps they start to believe those lies. Well, maybe God doesn't think this is a big deal. It doesn't really hurt anybody after all. It's just one click. It's just one conversation. It's just one night. Whatever it is. And we ease our consciences into disobeying God. So here's maybe a couple of a simple warning signs about false teachings. If you are entertaining a theology or dabbling with a teaching that sort of lets you off the hook concerning righteousness, justice, self-inspection, self-control, you're going down a dangerous path. Any teaching that aims to or has the result of easing your conscience about things to which the scriptures would bind it is a false teaching. If you are listening to voices, reading books and blogs, following teachers who frame Christian faith as a means to some other end, you're veering away from the name and faith of Jesus. Christianity is not a means to some other end, whether that be cultural approval or political power or financial gain or whatever. Christian faith is a means to Christ. That's it. It's, and if it's something other than the person of Jesus Christ at the center of our pursuit, we're veering. We're in dangerous territory. As a church, we must determine before the Lord not to be a community that smirks at sin. That takes a tolerant posture toward unrighteousness. That fails to take sin seriously. This is perhaps one of the greatest ailments in the American church is we just don't take sin very seriously. Some pastors won't even talk about it. It's too offensive. We want our people to feel good when they leave on Sunday morning. So we're just not going to mention sin. And the ones that do mention it, perhaps they champion grace so much, they think, they claim, they champion grace so much that your sin doesn't really matter. And so there's a, there's a cheap, kind of easy grace uh, version of Christianity that says, you know, how you live is, doesn't really matter very much. As long as you know that God will love you and forgive you and receive you no matter what. Now listen, we are people of grace. We believe in grace. We celebrate grace. Praise God for his grace. There is always mercy when we repent. 
But if we will not call sin what God calls sin, if we will not draw boundaries around our lives and behaviors and words and thoughts, if we will not indeed draw boundaries around the lives of all those within our church fellowship and say, hey, we've agreed to hold each other accountable to these certain things, to these certain truths, to these certain practices, then we would be just as guilty, just as in danger as the Church of Pergamum was of drifting into not just theological error, but into lives that are not marked by the character and righteousness of Jesus. And thus to, 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 into a church that doesn't really represent or resemble Jesus at all. Now we'll do this imperfectly. I mean, come on. None of, the, none of us can do this, right? We're all sinners. Every one of us here is a sinner. And it will only be the grace of God in the gospel that gives us the courage and the confidence to know and be known. It's not easy. It's uncomfortable. If I'm going to confess sin to somebody, that's embarrassing. That might even make me afraid that this person is not going to like me anymore. They're going to look at me differently. They're going to look down on me. But friends, it's because of our confidence in the gospel. It's because the grace of God in Christ covers our sins, gives us a new identity, a new righteousness, and a new eternal destination. It's because of our confidence in what Christ has done in his finished work that we can be honest with each other. That we can share our struggle. Because none of us has it down. We need one another. And we need the boundaries of truth. That God's word sets for us to say this is what we deem faithfulness to Christ looks like. And I want you to help me with that. And I want to help you with that. And we need one another in the church for that pursuit. Repent or, this is the next message right in verse 16. Therefore repent If not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And he's coming soon, he says. I don't think he's referring to his his last day return. I think he's speaking of a, a judgment in history. So if you as a church, Pergamum, will not purge from among you the false teachers and teaching and immorality that's going on and repent of these things, I will come to you in time and judge. I think that's what he means. Referring to the Balaam episode uh, when he was confronted by the angel carrying a sword, Greg Beale says this, Balaam was originally threatened with the sword in the angel's hand if he continued to oppose Israel. And was eventually killed by the sword for his evil doing. The false teachers in Pergamum will face the same fate as Balaam unless they repent. And neither should the church think it is exempt from punishment if it continues to tolerate these evildoers. So the ones who are guilty of the false teaching are the initial and immediate and explicit targets of Christ's judgment. But the church at whole is not off the hook. The church as a whole is responsible for stepping up and removing the false teaching from its midst. Somebody needs to say, that's not right, preacher. That's not the gospel. 
That's not God's word. That's not true. We're not going to go that way. Somebody needs to be willing to do that. And the church collectively needs to move in that direction. Hey, that's right. We're, we're going to follow Christ and his word and not follow Satan off into the worship of false gods. And Christ will come in judgment with the sword of his mouth. Now, hear me. Don't get me wrong on this. Jesus loves sinners. He died for them. He was raised to justify them. He's patient and kind to sinners. Praise God for that. But do not be lulled to sleep by his kindness. He is a righteous king. He is a holy judge. And he will come with a sword against those, even among his church, who compromise with false teaching and participate in acts of immorality. We need his holiness to mark our lives. Well, it's not time for a word of hope. And praise God, he gives it. To the one who conquers, Jesus says in verse 17, to the one who conquers, and he says this to each of the seven churches, and perhaps to this particular church, it's an ironic phrase. That you would say to a persecuted church, if you'll conquer, how, how am I supposed to conquer? I'm under uh, pressure socially to conform and I'm under legal penalty to pay homage to Caesar on threat of death. How in the world is this church supposed to conquer? Well, in the kingdom economy, conquering is not defined by power, wealth, and prestige. It's defined by sacrifice, by service, and by faithfulness. So when Jesus says to the one who conquers, he's not saying to the one who rises up and fights back and reclaims what's his. Nope. He's saying to the one who faithfully endures. To the one who stays true to the name and faith of Christ, no matter what comes, that's what conquering looks like. It doesn't look like fighting to claim back what you think got taken from you. It looks like laying yourself down. It looks like, indeed, Jesus sacrificing ourselves for the sake of what is true and what is right. How would these suffering, tempted Christians conquer? By remaining true to Christ amid trial and temptation. And to that conqueror, to those who conquer, Jesus promises three beautiful symbols of eternal reward. Hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Briefly, hidden manna. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, of course, it was with manna that God miraculously fed Israel in the wilderness during those wanderings before they entered the land of Canaan as their home, God fed them with a daily supply of manna, bread from heaven. And in John chapter 6, Jesus presents himself as the true bread from heaven. Uh, He had just fed a crowd of thousands of people with a few pieces of bread and a couple of fish. And the people are saying, give us more, right? We, we want more signs from you. We want more of this bread from heaven. And Jesus said, I am the true bread from heaven. And whoever takes of me will never hunger again. I am the bread of life, he famously said. 
When he says here, I will give you some of the hidden manna, I think he's referring here to himself as the bread from heaven that sustains and gives life, indeed eternal life. And there's an implication here that Christ, the true bread, is better than food offered to idols. You can even see a connection between the hidden manna and the, the idol food that was specifically mentioned in this text. It's as though... Uh, the, the people are tempted to eat the meat and food that has been offered to idols. And he's saying here, listen, there's something better. You can't see it yet. Right? It's yet invisible to you. But it is better. It is infinitely better. It leads to eternal life and hope. And I believe that it implies the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Again, each of these promises that he gives to the churches uh, point forward. They foreshadow something in the, the later vision that John will give us. And in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9, he says this, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and bring him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. I think that the hidden manna is a a reference to not just our feeding on Christ in the here and now, but in the future eternal fellowship that we'll have with Christ forever. We get to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb at His return when He establishes His kingdom. To the one who conquers, I will give some of this hidden manna. The second thing you'll give them is a, a white stone. I will give him a white stone. Now, two things to know about this. Jews used white stones as tokens of admission to special occasions or important banquets and parties. There was a, a white stone that you had to show to prove that you had the, the right to be there, that you had been invited to be a part of that occasion. And that signifies the right to enter God's kingdom. To the one who conquers, I will give a white stone. In other words, you have access. You have been invited, and maybe even more specifically, entrance to the marriage supper. Christ affords this white stone, this entrance to those who would persevere in faith. And the white stone also were used in jury trials as a symbol of a, non, a not guilty verdict. So when it came time for the jury to pronounce uh, guilt or non-guilt upon uh, the defendant, the, 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 the black stone would symbolize guilt and the white stone would symbolize innocence. They would say not guilty by showing this white stone. And so the stone also signifies the purity of the saints and indeed the, the, the verdict of not guilty that Christ pronounces upon his people when they persevere in faith, when they conquer and endure to the end, not because of their own righteous deeds, but because of Christ's righteousness that's been given to them in the gospel. And so the stone signifies the entrance into this, this marriage supper and the kingdom of God, and it symbolizes the, the purity of the people of God, the bride of Christ who has been covered in his righteousness. And then finally, a new name. Indeed, he says that there's a new name etched on the white stone. 
that no one knows except the one who receives it. He refers again later to, uh, to a stone with, with the name of Christ that was given to all those who were in the book of life. And so uh, I think he's speaking really here of his own name. The name is Christ's name, and he puts it upon the stone of all those who will conquer. It, it's a picture of ownership, almost like branding, right? It, it's, it entails security and sealing. They are sealed with uh, the name of Christ upon them. It contrasts directly with uh, the mark of the beast. We haven't gotten there yet, but in Revelation chapter 14, uh, there's uh, 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 the, the beast's name inscribed upon the, the foreheads of those who follow him in, for, in Revelation 14, 11. And so this new name that nobody knows except uh, the one who receives the stone is a direct contrast to those who receive the, the name of the beast on their foreheads. We don't belong to him. We belong to Christ. And that's what this signifies henceforth and forevermore. So we're given the, the, the bread from heaven. We're given entrance into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're, we're given the name. We're given His name. We're given this new name that marks us for all eternity as His people. We are secure in Him forever. To quote, quote Greg Beal one more time, he says, To be given a new name was an indication of a new status. Therefore, the reception of this name by believers represents their final reward of being consummately identified and united with the intimate end-time presence and power of Christ in his kingdom and under his sovereign authority. So the one who conquers will be sealed eternally with the name of Jesus Christ, acquitted of their sins and spared from the final judgment and granted entrance at the marriage supper of the Lamb where they will feed forever on the bread from heaven, Jesus Christ. Friends, what an incredible promise. What an incredible hope. Have you turned to Christ as the bread of life? Have you trusted in him for your eternal hope? If you would repent of your sins today and rest your life in him, these rewards can be yours forever. And to those who have named Christ as Lord and Savior, we have only to lean on him and his spirit to help us to endure, to remain faithful and to persevere to the end that these eternal rewards might be ours. Let's pray.